And so this is a Father's Day message. And um, I think it's appropriate because the Bible tells us it's the fifth commandment, is to honor your father and mother. One of the Ten Commandments. Out of all the things God could tell us to do, out of, he, he boiled it down to ten. And one of those ten most important things God commanded us to do is to honor our father and mother. And in, in Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us one of the reasons this is so important because it says it's the first commandment that contains a promise along with it. And what is that promise that's along with it? Long life. Anybody interested in long life? Living long? There's the key. Honoring your father and mother. So we're going to talk about fatherhood today and God is our father. But let's pray first. Father, we do come to you. We honor you this morning. Our desire of our heart is to honor you as the creator of our life. You could have created us and just let us go and watch to see what happens to us and be uninvolved with us. But that's not what you've done. You've created us, and because you've loved what you've created, and you created us for a purpose, and that purpose was to be your sons and your daughters, to walk with you and talk with you and to be with you in a close and intimate relationship that's walked out and lived out every day. Because that was your desire, Father, you have done everything that was possible for you to do to maintain that and then restore it once it was lost by the sin of that first man and woman. And so we come to you today, Father, as men and women that have fallen but have been restored through the grace of Jesus Christ, restored into right relationship with you, and we are in the process of knowing you and learning to know you better and better every day. Know you as our God and creator, our God and provider, our God and healer, our God and deliverer, but most of all is our God who is our Father. And so we come to you today and ask the Holy Spirit to take the word and to guide and direct my words, that what you want to say to us, your children, would be, take place under the anointing of your spirit. And so we rely upon the spirit of God this morning to direct us and to, so that we would speak, as it were, the oracles or the words of God that are spoken into our hearts, our Father speaking to us this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand and to grasp all that you have prepared for those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, when you talk about, if I were going to start to teach you about nuclear physics, which I'm not qualified to do, or nuclear fission, In most cases, you'd know nothing about it, and so we'd start with a blank slate. But if you're going to talk about something that we all have some experience with, what happens is we all bring that experience into this morning, and it filters and alters what we hear. And since all of us have a father, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have a father. But that doesn't mean we all knew our father or those that knew their father all had the same experiences with our father that God intended it for us to have. And as a result, when I start talking about fatherhood to you and who a father is, you're going to hear it through your own experiences. So we're going to go back and look, first of all, at what the pattern that God ordained. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to look for a, for a little while at the Apostle Paul and his role as a spiritual father to his spiritual sons. And out of that, we're going to get some insight. We, we could take weeks to do this, but we really only want to take today. We could get, get insights into what God has planned a father to be. Because understand this, fatherhood, as we'll see a little later on, was God's idea. God created the family. It was his plan. And God does know what he's doing. And God's purpose for the family is it is a place that God has ordained to create life. Life is sacred to him. In much of the world today, it's not sacred at all. In large parts of this country, it's becoming less and less sacred. In some circles, it's not even sacred at all. But to God, it's sacred. It's his creation, and man's life is his crowning creation. 
and you were precious to him, were valuable to him, were important to him. There's no other being or thing that God created that he identified as his own. Everything else was created to serve him and accomplish his tasks, but man was the only creation that God made that he had a relationship with and called his own and talked to and fellowshiped with. And God formed this man and this woman. He formed the man, then he brought the woman out. And he designed them in such a way that he could authorize them to be an agent through whom he could create life. This is the reason why the act of of love, the physical act of love in God's scheme is only ordained within the context of the covenant of marriage. Because he he created that, that method for creating life. And as God only wants human life created in the context of a husband and a wife who are committed in a covenant to one another and to God. Because in that covenant, there's safety and there's acceptance and there's provision. And there's an atmosphere in which that life can grow and mature until that father and that mother have brought that child to the place where they're ready to turn them over to God as their father and God as their source of everything. So everything we do as parents is planned by God to prepare for that day when we release them to Him. And it's not a sudden thing, it's a gradual process. Now if all of our parents did that, and did that perfectly the way God ordained, everything would be wonderful. Now we may have messed up on our own, but we will all come together and just celebrate what fatherhood is. But unfortunately we've not all had that kind of background. I didn't have that kind of background. Many of you had, didn't have that kind of background. So we've all had varying experiences of what it means to have a father. In some cases, it's a painful thought to you. The thought of a father may be painful to you because it brings up painful memories. Some of you may be, have been abused by the very person that God put in your ordained to be your protector. And those are difficult things to overcome. God, by His grace, can help you to do that. Well, we're going to talk about a way today to be made whole, a way today that God can still be involved in your life even though your father may not have done what he was supposed to do or in some cases really tried hard and did the very best they could but still fell, fell short of what God's plan was. So we'll start by looking at what a father is through Paul and some of the th- relationships that he had with his sons in the faith. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we start out with this word of the Apostle Paul. Verse 14. For I do not write these... Now, what's happening here, and we've talked about this before in other studies, is that this is a church that the Apostle Paul started. He founded this church. And, and, and they have been operating in spiritual gifts. We've been talking about gifts that God gives to us. And we referred to this church before. They've been operating in spiritual gifts. But they've become very proud of these gifts. And they're drawing their identity, they're drawing their value in life, especially within the context of the church, by how God's using them. And Paul starts out this letter by telling them that although they think they're so spiritual in God's eyes, they're carnal. That's not a compliment. They're fleshly. They're carnal. In other words, they're babies in Christ. They're immature. So this letter is primarily a letter of correction. And it gives us a tremendous insight as to how this wise apostle who sees himself as a spiritual father to this church corrects them as a father does. And here we'll see him express some of that. Verse 14 again. I do not write these things to shame you. So I don't want to get off on this tangent, but a a godly father does not use shame as a method of correction. Shame tears down your identity. Shame tears down your value. Shame is attacking who you are. Correction is to be addressed at your behavior, not at your nature. So when you correct your child by saying, you worthless thing, you have no idea what you're instilling in that child, what you're tearing down in that child. God does not do that. And here we see the Apostle Paul having just corrected them and really correcting them strongly, says, I did not do this to shame you. What was his motive? 
but as my beloved children to warn you. A father will warn his child. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. That's an amazing statement. There are many people that speak into and influence and affect your life. Many voices out there. The Bible says there's many voices in the world. And none of them without significance. In other words, they all have some kind of impact on you. The voices may come from TV news. It may come from your your family. It may come from friends. It may come from your teachers. It may come from your peers. It may come from your boss. It may come from your own mind talking to you. It may come from your spouse. It may come from your children. It may come from grandparents. All kinds of sources around you speaking to you. And Paul says you may have 10,000 instructors, people telling you things to do and not do, but you don't have many fathers. There's a difference between an instructor and a father. Both will speak things to you. Both may do teachings. But the difference is this. An instructor imparts to you information, knowledge, facts, understanding. (coughs) So if it's a teacher in school, they may be teaching you the principles of algebra. They may be teaching you the principles of of composition, of how to write well. I had a teacher in school that was brutal. (laughs) We called him Chopper because that's what he would do with whatever you wrote. You wrote it in those days. We didn't have computers and things like that, so you wrote it in blue ink, and it would come back with more red ink on the paper than you put blue ink. And he challenged you. So instructors impart information, but a father imparts himself. A father imparts himself. A teacher, it takes time and preparation and all of that, but then the teacher can walk away and, you know, if you pass, fine. If you didn't, fine. They go on to the next class. But a father imparts himself into you and therefore cares about what happens to you with what they've imparted. So they check up on you. They pray for you. They watch over you. They check on you. They listen to you. They're involved with you. We see this in the heart of the Apostle Paul. So he said, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So the first thing that a father does, we see, is begets, creates life. Father takes their life, their seed, and impregnates it in the the mother, and out of that comes your life. And that's one of the reasons why God has commanded us to honor our father and mother. Because by doing so, we are recognizing that the life that we have, whether we like it or not, or enjoying it or not, but that life came from them. It did not come from ourselves. We grow up and we become teenagers and we become full of our rights, and I know this, and my life, I can do this, and I want to do this. How come I can't go visit my friends when I want to? How come I can't stay? How come I, 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 how come I? It's my life. I know what I'm doing. I know more than you do. And we become self-confident in our life. It's my life. Yeah, but where did it come from? Where did that come from? Did you create it yourself? See, there's a certain humility when you have to recognize that the life that you have, that you're enjoying and and you want to take to the fullest and that you want to decide what to do with, that that you didn't, didn't come from you. Remember the old Bill Cosby show? He was having trouble with his son in this show one day. And he looked to him and he says, and of course he was an obstetrician. He literally has done this. He said, son, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. (laughs) And he was reminding his son at the beginning of his teenage years full of self-will and self-determination you came from me, whom I begot, who came from me. 
Now, this was a church that at this point, from what the scholars understand, was not allowing the Apostle Paul back in the church because he wasn't spiritual enough. That's how proud they had gotten. They were not allow- in other words, they were not allowing Father in his house. Now, I didn't have to do this often, but there were a few times, not very often with our kids. They were very good. But I had in the back of my mind, if there's an issue of whose house this is, when the end of the month comes and the mortgage is due, you sign the check. You pay it this time. You go buy the food. You go do these things. No, it's all come from us. And so when God tells us to honor our fathers and mothers, there's a benefit in us to, to us for that because it's a, it's a, it creates a humility and an awareness that I don't, my life did not come from me. It's been in, in fact, then we begin to grow and find out, not only didn't it come to me, it was entrusted to me, which means I'm responsible for it. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding them of these things. Now let's quickly look over at 1 Thessalonians. So a father gives life. 1 Thessalonians, keep something here, we'll come back here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Well, we'll start in verse 4. But as we have approved by God, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is our witness. Nor did we see glories, he's talking about his motives, either from you or from others, when we might have had made demands as apostles of Christ. <clears throat> verse 7. But we were gentle among you, Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of of God, that's the teacher, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. But you remember, brethren, that our labor and our toil, for our laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach the gospel of God. You are witnesses. God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Why? That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul's heart as a father, spiritual father, to this church also, was to impart his life and to be an example before them so that they might be, learn to walk worthy of their heavenly Father who had called them. So the first thing we see about a father is he imparts life. He's the giver of our life. And he imparts that life to us. And with that come some other things. In, in imparting life... He doesn't just go get that from some life bank and give it to you. That life comes from him. And the result is you literally then begin to take as part of who you are, part of who your father is. In fact, we now understand through genetics and DNA that is literally exactly true. Which is why it's not shocking that as you begin to grow and get older and older, you discover this amazing thing. You begin to look like your parents. And I find as I get older and I begin to look in the mirror and I look at a picture of my father, sometimes it disturbs me to see how much like him I look. But that's not, that shouldn't be shocking, should it? That shouldn't be, oh my gosh, I'm looking like my father. It's shocking because I realize that's assigned to me. I'm getting to the age that he was when I saw that picture, when he took that picture. But it's not shocking that I should look like my father. What would be shocking is if I didn't. it would raise questions as to who my real father was. So if my, my, father, my skin's white as it is, you know, if my father's skin, my look at my father and his skin was dark and my mother, I mean black, and my mother's skin was black, it would raise some questions as to who my father was. Why? Because you look like your father. That's a normal thing. 
because your life came out of him, and your mother too. And so what comes from that is not only just life itself, but other things that come out of life, one of which is your identity. And identity is so important to us. You have to feel as if you belong to something. There's something in human nature where we need to belong. God made us to need relationship, to need to belong to something, but really to belong to people, others. And so as we are God's plan, as we are conceived by this mother and father and brought into this world and begin to grow and we begin to discover that we're part of something that's bigger than us. We have a mother and a father and we may have siblings, brothers and sisters, that we're part of something. So there's a sense of identity that we begin to get and it comes from our father. And it isn't interesting because our culture and call for cultures all the way back in time that we have recorded history is we take on our father's name. Because name is part of your identity. One of the things that the communists did when they would, back in the Korean War and in other conflicts, when they would, when they would capture uh, soldiers is they would try to take their identity away from them. First of all, what they discovered, World War I, they, 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 they didn't discover that because they put them all together. In the Korean War, they discovered what they did was the mistake they made is because when they put them together, they had fellowship and community. And so what they did in the Korean War was they'd isolate them and they would take their identity away from them. That's what happened in the concentration camps. The concentration camps, they took your name away and gave you a number, and they tattooed that number on you. I had a secretary when I first practiced law who had been a little child in a concentration camp in World War II, and she had a number tattooed on her forearm. They take your identity away from you, because then you're isolated and you're, you, you're, you're, you're defenseless. It breaks down your defenses. And the enemy does that. Satan does that. He tries to isolate you. And separates you from people. Proverbs 18.1 says a man who isolates himself basically is selfish. He lives his life for himself. And that's what Satan wants you to do. So your identity comes from your father. Your, your sense of who you are. Your name. My name is John L. Pfeffer Jr. Which tells you that's what my father's name was. So my, my name came from him. Your name. And those of you, now, the interesting thing is that when we were married 43 years ago, her maiden name was Trenor. That was her father's name. And when we were married, her name changed to Pfeffer. She had a name change because her identity changed because we now became one. I had a couple I was doing premarital counseling a few years ago. And I don't want to get off into a sensitive issue, but just tell you what I had. And, and they were struggling. She was struggling with whether she was going to take his name or not. And it had him upset. So instead of getting to that issue, I just asked her, why do you want to keep your maiden name? And she had some reason, which made some sense. And I said, well, let me tell you what marriage is. Marriage is a blood covenant where the two of you are come together and your identity becomes one, why do you want to hang on to your old identity? That's what was bothering him. Because it told him she was trying to hang on to something of the old while she's entering into a covenant with him that's new. So our identity comes from our father. Our sense of belonging to something, a sense of who I am. A mother can love her son and nurture her son and develop her son and feed her son and clothe her son, but that son's identity as a man comes from his father. It's the father believing in him in the Old Testament, there was a practice known as the Father's Blessing. We've had a book, in the, it's old book, back from the 80s, uh, called The Blessing. Read it if you've never read it. About the Father's Blessing. I don't know if we have it in the bookstore. If we don't, we'll get some, so be patient with us. But it talks about the roots from the Old Testament and how necessary it is for a father to pass that blessing along to his children, especially to the son. 
It's, it's a sign of approval. It's a sign that you belong. It's a sign. It's, a, it's an expression. It's an actual, it's a, it's a communication to that child that you are valuable, that you have an identity, that you have an importance, that you have a significance. Every one of us needs to know that we have a significance and an importance and a meaning. And we're going to look to get that from somewhere. And God's plan and pattern is for that to come from our parents and especially from our father to communicate to his sons and to his daughters who they are. A father can communicate to a son that you are a man, that you are the man, in, in, you are man in preparation, and a father can communicate to his daughter that you are a woman in preparation. Fathers, if you have a young daughter, you need to date her. You need to take her out, pay attention to her, begin to recognize and honor her as a young lady. Because if you don't. There's going to come a point where she's going to look to somebody else to provide that for her. I got a little granddaughter. She's six years old. She sang here last week in the choir. And she, she, last time we were babysitting, she, she was playing music. She wanted to stand on my feet and, and dance with me. And I was tired. You know, and then all of a sudden I was, my little granddaughter wants me to dance with her. What precious moment. And so we danced around together. She's pretty good, you know. We danced around together. And I'm beginning to treat her as a, as, a, as, a, as a lady, even though she's only six years old. Begin to respect that feminine side and her value as a young lady, even though she's six years old. Begin to talk to them that way. Where are they going to get it from? But God's plan is to get it from you. So our identity, our sense of who we are, our sense of, 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 of importance and of significance and meaning comes from, especially from our father. Our mother's communicated, but when it comes from father, there's authority, there's something that comes from that that mother cannot give. Mother can give nurturing and caring, and, and fathers can nurture and care, but mother's nurturing and care. That's why when they bump their knee, they run to mom, because they want the comfort, and they want the, the nurturing. But who they are and their potential Those come from their father more than anyone else. And that's what Paul's doing here. Notice he says, he says, he's calling them up to walk worthy of the calling, which we've been studying before, of which they've been called. All right, now what else does a father provide? He provides direction and purpose. He does this by primarily God designed it this way, by being an example to us. One of the ways God designed us as human beings is we're imitators. We imitate that which is around us, which is why the book of Proverbs, which is a father writing instructions to his son. And so much of the book of Proverbs are very practical things, but there's a large part of it interlaced through there that instructs the son to be careful of who he associates with. And listen carefully to this. You pick up information by the people that speak to you. But attitudes and motivations and values, attitudes and motivations and values are picked up by association, who you hang out with. Bad company corrupts. Why? Because what's in their heart is picked up in your heart. Jesus used this method. Because when he, knowing he was going to leave here at the end of his public ministry, and he was going to turn this over to these 12 men, he didn't tell them to attend a seminary, did he? He didn't tell them to come and join his school of ministry, did he? He said... You, come follow me. He lived with them. He associated with them. He spent time with them. And in the process, they picked up attitudes. They picked up things from him, intangible things, that they weren't even aware that they picked up, but later came out. So, 
We imitate. And it's cute to watch a child. I remember a couple of years ago when our grandchildren were over spending the night, and my, I still got a picture of this. I went, you know, I'd gone in and I'd shaved, and, I, and I, I came out of the bathroom and came back, and my grandson's in there. He's taking the shaving cream, and he's got it all over his face. Why? Because he wants to shave because he saw Papa shave. And there's a time, you know, he, he would come around. His dad was carrying a briefcase. He'd come around carrying a briefcase. He was just imitating whatever his dad was doing, you know. The other day we were over there, and he was on top of their car trying to wash it. So I assume he saw his father wash the car. I saw somebody wash the car because he didn't get the idea from his own. So they, children imitate their parents. How many of you as parents have found yourself saying things to your children that your parents said to you that you said you'd never do? I'll never say that to my kids. And somewhere under pressure, it comes out. Why? Because you heard them say it. You saw them do things. You imitate them. And they imitate the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) They will imitate whatever you put in front of them. And so the Apostle Paul talks about this. Talks about being an example to them. So they'll, they'll pick up the examples of your life. They'll do that with the practical things of life, practical habits. They'll, you'll, find, you'll, you'll find your children begin to just walk the way you walk. They'll begin to pick things up the way you pick them up. And so we, begin to, we, we learn by example, by seeing and by following, by seeing and by following, by seeing and by following. They want to act grown up. They'll do it around their siblings. They'll, see it. They'll try to imitate their siblings. We pick up character traits and inward traits, such as our integrity and our faithfulness. Father, those little things you do that you may not think are important, like going to work every day. Yeah, well, I'm supposed to do that. That's right. But you're communicating something to your children. You're communicating that you're faithful. You're communicating integrity. They watch what you do. And they will imitate what you do. My mother used to say, don't do what I do, do what I said. The problem is I imitated what she did. She can say that all she wants. So you'll pick up character traits. You'll pick up uh, internal things such as integrity and faithfulness are imparted by example. Imparted by example. All right. Spiritual life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, we looked at that earlier, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me I urge you to imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So a father imparts his life. He gives us identity. He gives us a sense of belonging, a sense of of who we are. He gives us a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. He He teaches us and trains us. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. The the New American Standard says, in the nurture and admonition, or the training, that word means, an admonition of the Lord. So we're to train our children. There's a difference between teaching and training. Again, teaching is imparting information. Training is changing behavior. Those of you who have been in the military, went through a process of training known as basic teaching. No, it wasn't called that, was it? It was called basic training. And they start out by letting you know that the day begins at 5 a.m., whether you knew there was a 5 a.m. or not. They wake you up, and whether you feel like getting up or not, whether it's convenient for you, whether it's in your normal habit of things, is totally irrelevant. In the military, you get up at 5 a.m. And if you don't think you have to, you find out, not by teaching, but by experience, you're going to do what they say. And they assign to you someone called a drill instructor. 
And their job is to train you, to modify your behavior by making you do things that they want you to do that you either don't want to do or don't think you can do. And you discover you can do things you didn't know you could do. And you can do things you don't want to do. That's a shock to some people. You know, that's one of the most important things a child needs to learn is they can do things they don't want to do. They can eat things they don't want to eat. And they'll find they can actually do things they don't think they can do. Because your flesh will tell you what you can do, but your flesh lies. So a father not only teaches, but trains, which means we make them do what they're supposed to do, whether they want to do it or not, because we're training them for life. So we train them, nurture, the training, the discipline, and admonition of the Lord. Father provides discipline when we're wrong. It should be in 1 Corinthians 4. I told you to go back there, and let's go to chapter chapter 5. Because now what the Apostle Paul begins to deal with is a particular situation. He said, It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man is basically living with his stepmother. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he's done this deed and may be taken away from among, might be taken away from among you. In other words, you haven't addressed this. For indeed, as I'm absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I've already judged as though I were present with him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such one, as some translations says, I've delivered. But the New King James says, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, so that this man doesn't go so far down the road that he's in Satan's grasp, do something. And if you're not going to do something, then I'm going to have to put him into Satan's hands. This may shake your theology up, but it's what it says. I'm going to put him into Satan's hands so he can get a taste of what it would be like to live in his grip forever. Now, we don't have time to go into the process of discipline, godly discipline, but it doesn't start out there. The Bible's pattern for discipline is to start out with words. Don't do that. That's one of the things, most important things a father needs to train their children in is listen to my words. Not because I make you do it, because you learn to do it because I say so. Because in an emergency, they may not have the time, you may not have the time to rush out there and pull them out of the street as that car is coming around the corner. And I had an example of that. Our little two-year-old, eight-year-old twins were running down this driveway, which was pitched downhill towards the street. And as they headed towards the street, I just yelled, No! Stop! And they, because I had trained them, they froze. And a car was coming around the corner. They didn't see it. but I trained them to do what I told them to do with their words. And that's God's method of discipline, primary method. But the Bible goes on and says if we won't listen to his words, then we'll... My mother used to have this expression, those that won't listen, feel. (laughs) That sums it up. But notice he does it out of love. The motive is the salvation of that man's soul, that he will not end up ultimately in the grasp of Satan. All right. So a father will discipline. And the motive for discipline is always out of love and what's best for that child. What I would do before I disciplined my children is I always sent them somewhere. That gave me time to make sure my motive was right. And then I would just say, Lord, I've got to have my motive right. I'm not, I'm not doing this out of anger because anger is to get back at them. Because whatever is in your heart is what you'll communicate to them. Not what you say, what's in your heart. And I would go into that room assigned for the process of correction. And I would bring with me an instrument of correction. I never used my hand because my hand was meant for love and tenderness. So I had an instrument of correction. Not abuse, correction. Because God provided a particular part of the anatomy which is well padded 
and yet full of nerve endings. So it can feel but not be harmed. God's design. And I would apply the rod of correction to the seat of learning. With love. So I would start out by saying, now do you understand what rule you broke? Do you know why you're here? And if they didn't, we would make clear they understood you talked back to your mother. And that's one of the rules. Had rules. You disobeyed to do this. Because you're not going to know why. Right? And then we administered love. <laughs> but my motive, because there were many times I didn't want to do it. It wasn't convenient. You know, the child's crying. I don't want to hurt this child. We brought him into the world. It's easier for me to let it go. But it wasn't what's best for the child. And so the motive was to picture this child when they're 25, now 29. What are they going to do when they're presented with these situations? That's my responsibility. And then we would have a time of, of forgiveness. And then I would end by saying... This issue will never come up again. You paid the price. It's over in my mind. So I'm not going to bring it back to your recollection. A father disciplines and trains his children. But a father also restores. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. Restores those who've received correction. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Talking about the same man, I believe. Some scholars just disagree with that, but I believe this is the same person. Verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but of all of you who, to the same extent, to not to be too severe. Verse 6. Talking about the same man. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps this one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. To this end, I wrote you also that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. And if indeed I have forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one of your sakes, forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. A father's heart is always redemptive. Correction, training, discipline, all of those things are with the goal of bringing that child to the place of maturity where they can become a productive member of society, but more importantly, take their place in the body of Christ and have a relationship with God, the God as their father and understand that this is what I, the way I've been to you is the way he is. And now you can begin to know your own relationship with him and develop that relationship and have him reveal himself to you. A father, therefore, imparts life, gives identity, a sense of belonging, purpose, and direction, trains, teaches, disciplines, restores, and a father provides vision for the future and an inheritance. The Bible says a good man will lay up an inheritance for his children's children. A father wants to leave this, wife, this life not with a plan. He knows he can't take it with him. A good father does everything he does for the blessing and welfare of of his children so that they can handle it. All right. Not only that, but a father intercedes. Philemon. Some of you may not know there's a book called Philemon, but it's right before Hebrews. Philemon. One chapter book. Powerful little book. Someday I want to do a message or a series of messages on it. But this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Philemon who had had a, 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 a slave named Onesimus who had escaped from his master, Philemon. And what's happened is, in the process of time, both Philemon and the slave have gotten saved. And now there's this situation of Paul has had this this Onesimus, who we're going to see he called a son in the faith, has been serving him faithfully, and now his what Paul is going to do is he says, we've got to do what's right. You belonged, even though it was slavery, you belonged to this master Philemon, 
who's now saved. So Paul is sending this son in the faith back to his old master with this letter, which basically says, I am, you almost get the sense that Paul had led Philemon to the Lord. Basically, I am I'm like a father to you. And if I wanted to order you to receive him back the right way, I could. But I appeal to you as a brother. What he's saying to him is now the the, the relationship's changed. Because he's going to come back to you. And he was your slave. But I'm appealing to you to receive him as a brother in Christ. He may still work for you, but I'm appealing to you. I could order you to but I'd rather you do this because you love me and you love him. And that's the setting for this letter. Beautiful little letter. There's a whole imagery in here. But let's look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. He was bound up in prison for preaching the gospel. Notice, the Apostle Paul sending his son in the faith back into a difficult situation where he could be legally enslaved again is appealing or interceding on his son's behalf using the authority that he has in that situation. So a father will intercede. Sometimes that intercession may be a natural intercession where they step in and stand up for their son, or maybe it's on their knees interceding for that son who may not be where they need to be or doing what they need to do. But a father's heart does not let go. A father's heart, see, that his life's imparted into that child. Wherever that child goes, that father's heart goes. That father's heart may be broken, may get discouraged, may go through all, but that father's heart is always towards that child, just as a mother's heart is always towards her child. She carried her that child. She gave birth to that child. That father imparted his life into that child. And the more involved you with that child, the more time you spend with that child, the more of your life you're imparting into them. Brings back memories. It's interesting, about 11 years ago, I guess it was, I was watching one summer, um, um, I guess it was the U.S. Open, so it must have been the same time of year, the U.S. Open golf tournament. Came down to the end in this gentleman named Payne Stewart sunk a putt and was jumping all over the place. And I don't remember exactly what was said, but talking about how his father taught him golf and all this thing. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting and I start crying. I don't cry easily. I'm just starting to cry. It's just welling up inside of me. I'm thinking, what is going on here? I'm just, you know, I like golf, but it's not, I wasn't that moved that he won. I mean, it's nice. He was a Christian. I'm glad to see he won. But it's not enough to call. I mean, I'm not just, you know, I'm, I'm really losing it. What is going on? And later on, I remembered what it was. I realized what it was. It talked about how his father, and I think his father had died, how his father had taught him golf. And I look back. My father, my parents were divorced when I was nine years of age. My father was raised in a very difficult family, all kinds of challenges. And, and, and we had a kind of a rough relationship. He didn't really know how to raise a son. And, and, and so it was, a, it was a struggle. And he used to do things. He thought that he could make a man out of me by making things as hard as possible for me, having no idea what he's communicating to me. You know, you can't do this. You can, so he put challenges in my way, and if I, in a, but never communicate to me, I could meet the challenge. I know, and I know his intentions were right, but it didn't produce the right results, so I had to overcome some things. And so we had a rough time, but I suddenly saw what it was. The only thing that I can remember, my father really spent time with me and taught me and instilled in me was how to play golf. He spent time doing it. When I was with him every other weekend, we would go out. He, one of the things we would do is go out on the golf course, and he would say, "Now, John, keep your head down." And I wasn't. He had a nickname. I won't tell you. He said, "Keep your head down." <laughs> kind of like Pastor Sam. Keep your head down. Keep your head down. Now you do this. Now that's right. You don't do that. And he played. He was a very good golfer. And I remembered that it was the only thing that I can remember. Now, he taught me other things, but he really took me aside and spent time and took something that was important to him and imparted it into me. And that's why I wept. It wasn't golf. It was something that I had from him that he had given me. 
And when your father spends time with you, when you as fathers spend time with your children and you impart something into them, you're not just giving them instruction on things like that, but you're putting part of yourself in them. And they treasure anything that they get from you. They treasure anything. A number of years ago, he passed on, and, and he'd remarried a couple, number of times. And I remember all they sent me was a box full of some old watches, most of which have no value at all. I still have them around because there's something from him. Then I found a, a tie clip with his, his initials, which are my initials, on it. I don't wear tie clips, but I treasure that because it was from him. The only thing I have left of his now. But they're a tie to something. The tie clip doesn't mean anything, but the one who came from does. Now, as I said in the beginning, that's the ideal. But as in my case and in many of our cases, unfortunately, that's not what we've had. There's some of you out there, maybe many of you, who if you look at yourself as a father, realize I've not been the father I wanted to be. I've not been the father I could have been. And I see the results in some cases. Is there hope for us? Well, in Christ, there's always hope. I want to tell you what I've learned, what's helped me to overcome and, and build into my life and then hopefully build into my children's life to some degree. Some of the things that, that we've talked about, even though I may not have gotten them all from my father. Because it dawned on me that one day, well, let's turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. It's interesting because after my father passed away, I used to think about what he didn't do. The things I wish he'd done, he didn't do. And his wife at the time, after he passed away, took all the pictures that he had and put them in this huge box and sent us to, to me. And I'm going through these old pictures and thousands of slides, looking at them and looking at them like this. And Anita stands next to me, and she says, boy, he loved you. And I looked at her. I said, what do you mean? She said, every one of these pictures of you. I said, what do you mean? She says, nobody takes these many pictures of one person unless they're important to them. And it hit me. He loved me as best he could. He gave to me what he had to give. And all these years, I thought it wasn't enough. I was mad at him and angry at him, and I'd gone through a process of forgiving him. But that's the time it all turned around when she pointed that out to me because it clicked. He gave me what he could give to me. And suddenly I looked back and saw what his childhood was like and what his parents' childhood was like, and I realized how difficult it was for him, and I saw his heart. That's all I ever wanted was his heart. And all that stuff from the past lifted and went away. And all the good memories began to flood in. He gave me what he could. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God is the Father of all of us. Our life comes from Him. Just as our natural life comes from our physical Father, our spirit man, our spirit life, comes from our spiritual Father. Our physical life, actually, because life comes from Him. But this is why Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 16, in order, to be, in order to enter the kingdom of God, heaven, you must be born again. And that word in Greek means both a second time and also from above. So just as your physical person, your physical body was born out of your father and your mother and has your father and mother's genes and traits and all these things we talked about, in the same way when you come to Christ... Your spirit man is born of him. And your spirit man has his nature, which is why Peter says that we've been given the divine nature. 
John chapter 1 says, To all who believe upon him, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of the will of man, but of or out of God. So if you're born again, if you've come to Christ, you have been literally, you are literally his child. You have been born in the spirit realm just as your body was born. Therefore, you have his nature. You have his identity. You're known as a Christian. Israel, understand, is not the name of a nation. It's the name of a man out of which all those people have come. It's identified with that nation, but it's the name of a man. You are called a Christian. That's not the name of a religion. It's the, it's the title of a man who is our Savior and our Lord, and we are identified with him. We take on his name and his identity. In, uh, so as a father, he gives to us his identity. Let's go looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Look at verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him, having predestined, that just means planned ahead, us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of of His will. He is the God and creator of all things. And think about this for a second. The God and creator of all things can choose to relate to us as He wants. So He could have chosen to say, you're my servants. You're my little beings that I've created to do the things I want, my bidding. Because I'm God. And he could do that because he is God. In Isaiah, we saw last year, when we looked at some things we saw, he said, I'm the potter, you're the clay, I can make you the way I want. And if I don't like the way you're made, I'll remake you and make you the way I want. Because I make all things. So he could have decided to have made us as slaves and servants who perform his will. Like in, the, in, the, in, the, in Egypt, when the children of Israel were in Egypt... They served under men called taskmasters. They didn't care about them. They just wanted the job done. And if they needed to beat them to get the job done, they did. If they needed to starve them to get the job done, they did. It didn't care what happened to the slave. They cared whether the job got done, and they used the slave to get the job done. That's what a taskmaster's like. God could have been that way for us to accomplish his will but he chose instead to begot us. He chose instead to have us born out of him and impart into us himself. That's the purpose, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit in you. He is the nature, he is God's own spirit who has been breathed into you when you accepted Christ. God has put his nature, he has put his identity in you. Galatians chapter 4. No. All right, when you get there, put something there because we're going to go back to Romans chapter 8. He's talking here about dealing with the flesh. We're going to look in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of bondage or slavery from a taskmaster again to fear. The Israelites feared the taskmaster because his motive was to work them to death and get everything out of them. We've not been given a spirit of bondage leading again to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. If we're heirs of God, then we're joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. That's talking about persecution, that we may be glorified with him. Let's go over to Galatians chapter 3.
Oh, let's shorten things down. Start in verse 24. Therefore the law was our tutor, teacher, to bring us to Christ that we may justify by faith. But after faith has come, which is what we're under, we're no longer under a tutor. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. Now I say, chapter 4, that the heir, as long as he is child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So that we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 3, you'll see, I think it's in verse 21 and 22, you'll see the story of where Jesus comes down to be baptized by John the Baptist. And he comes down to the water, and John argues with him and says, No, I, I'm not fit to untie the, the tongs of your sandals, and you're coming to me to be baptized? And Jesus says, Let us fulfill the requirements of the Scripture, which was what the old law required. So John gave into that, and Jesus, he baptized Jesus. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the Bible says the Holy Spirit descended upon him, came down from heaven upon him, and a voice spoke out of heaven and says... This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So the Spirit of God upon Jesus was a sign that He belonged as a son to His Father. Galatians 4 says that because you are a son, daughter, God has sent forth His Spirit upon you, in you, that now from within you can cry back to Him, Abba, which means Daddy, Father. So just as the Spirit of God being poured out on Jesus in that body of His, that human body of His, is a sign of His sonship and therefore the Father's approval. Because we said in the beginning... One of the things that a child needs from their father more than anything else is that words and signs of approval. Not I may like all you're doing, but I approve of you. You have value to me. You are important. You are accepted. You are mine. You belong to me. In the same way, when the Spirit of God was given to you, that was a visible tangible sign from God the Heavenly Father that you are His child, that you belong to Him, that you are accepted by Him, that you are valuable to Him, that you are important to Him, and that you belong to Him. So just as with my natural body, I have the natural appearance of my Father, And if you could see my father at my age standing next to me, you would know I was his son because we look alike. We have the same features. In the same way, in the spirit. In the spirit, you look like your spiritual father. Because you have his nature. Because you are his You are born out of Him. And you have His nature. You have His character. You have His qualities in you. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3 what we've been studying. Therefore, my beloved brethren, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've called. In other words, act like who you are. You are God's child because He's your Father. And what I did is I began to realize, although my father did the best he could, my heavenly father loves me perfectly. And all the things that I wanted from my natural father, he couldn't or didn't give me, I can now receive from my heavenly father. 
the acceptance, the approval. Discipline, training. We don't have time to go there, but if you look in Ephesians, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, it talks about how God as a father will discipline you as a son. Then it goes on and talks about, but it will only work as you receive it as a son receives correction. So I've gone to my father and said, I know there are areas of my life. I, my father never taught me how to do these. I, have no, I don't know how to do these things. I need to learn these things. You're not my father. I'm looking to you to teach me. And he has. And he is. All the things that you needed from your natural father that he either couldn't give you or didn't give you or you gave you but you needed more is available to you in your relationship with your heavenly father. And those of you that are fathers, because I remember as I began to discover this and realize, oh my goodness, I've now got to give things to my children that were not given to me. Where am I going to get them from? I realized I've got a father I can go to. So I began to go to him and say, Father, I don't know how to to love my wife. I don't know how to be a husband to my wife. My father had four wives. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to be a husband to my wife. I didn't have that modeled in front of me. What was modeled in front of me, I don't want. And he'd been teaching me, teaching me, still today, teaching me, because I still go to him for that. I need wisdom today to be a husband to her, a father to my children, even though they're grown, a grandfather to my grandchildren. But he's a faithful father when you go to him and call on him as father.